goes to Hollywood. I am very pleased to be joined today by Glenn Kenny. Uh, Glenn is the author of the new book, Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas, uh, which is quite entertaining. I highly recommend picking it up if you are into the movie Goodfellas or just movie criticism uh, in general. He's a film critic whose work appears in the New York Times and RogerEbert.com. He's also written for The Current, Rolling Stone, uh, The Village Voice, The New York Daily News, Playboy, Film Comment, and many other publications. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Glenn. Really appreciate it. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here. I've kind of looked forward to uh, having this conversation for a while. I was hoping it would happen. Uh, well, I uh, I wanted to talk a little bit, before we start talking about Goodfellas, I wanted to talk a little bit about movie books and the business therein uh, in general, because you've actually written three books now that I enjoy, and they're all very different sorts of books. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the first was an essay collection. Uh, about Star Wars uh, the, that you you edited. It's a galaxy not so far away. Uh, writers and artists on 25 years of Star Wars. Um, and then there's also a, a kind of critique come coffee table book, uh, Robert De Niro, Anatomy of an Actor, also really good, but very different from this, uh, Made Men, the Story of Goodfellas, which is, uh, which is you know, kind of a, a, a making of slash criticism book. Which of these titles... I talk. I, I was. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the difference between all of these these types of books and and bringing them to fruition. Uh, well, yes, I have many exciting anecdotes about these books, um, and they all came together um, relatively far apart from each other. Um, a galaxy not so far away. Writers and artists on twenty five years of Star Wars was published in two thousand two. Uh, Robert De Niro, Anatomy of an Actor, which was published by Fade On in collaboration with Cahiers du Cinema, was published 2014. And uh, Made Men was published um, last year, 2020. So that's a six-year um, uh, gap. And the gap between uh, Galaxy and, Made and uh, De Niro, Anatomy was like a 12-year gap. So I guess in the <laughs> next, my next book will be published in... 2023 so the gap keeps getting smaller which is not by like incre uh, certain increments uh, gets halved so that's nice but <laughs> i'll tell you about galaxy not so far away galaxy not so far away was a book uh, the idea was originated by a writer named tom bissell who at the time was an editor at henry holt he was very young i think he was about 12 um <laughs> he was a young editor and he was uh he had uh, he knew a lot. He, he was a very bright guy, still a brilliant guy, and now is a brilliant writer with several books to his credit, um, including Apostle about the Twelve Apostles in real life and uh, Magic Hours. Uh, there's a book called Creative Types that I think is coming out soon. He's a good friend and a real genius, and he was working at Henry Holt, and he was a he was a Star Wars fan. You might even say geek. I don't want to characterize him as a geek, but he was pretty intense and he wanted to do a book about the influence of Star Wars that actually took it seriously. And because of some internal thing at Henry Holt, he could pitch the idea and he could oversee the idea as an editor at Henry Holt, but he was not permitted to be the editor of record on the front cover. Mm -hmm. So they told him to go out and find someone else to to do that work and to put it together and not be you. 
and he was he asked um david foster wallace who was a friend of his uh about this he wanted uh wallace to write an essay for the book which he declined to do because he said he was never that into star wars but you know he said if you do lord of the rings uh hook me up because i can talk about that uh but david was kind enough to recommend me i had worked with him on a couple of projects at premiere magazine so i got together with tom he told me the idea for the book i had ideas he had ideas essentially we put it together to, to put it together as a duo you know he mm-hmm. i think it was him who solicited jonathan letham mm-hmm. to write an essay for the book which is one of the best essays um in the book i think a really personal and revealing essay about watching the star first star wars film several times while his mom was ill with brain cancer um i got elvis mitchell i got harry allen i got um tom carson arian berger critics uh like that joe queen and i mean there's a wide array of people neil pollock mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um we wanted dave eggers uh we played footsie with dave eggers for a very long time before he finally said he, he really couldn't come up with anything this was you know 2001 2000 2001 2002 when 9 11 happened a lot of the people we'd commissioned uh dropped out because they didn't feel like writing about a frivolous uh thing like star wars in this um environment i think one of the people who dropped out was uh colson whitehead um mm-hmm. but we eventually pulled it all together and we published in uh, fall of 2002 and it was the only uh, i think the only star wars affiliated book that ever lost money um <laughs> it did not uh we didn't get they holt really wasn't uh holt couldn't didn't couldn't figure out how to promote it. they were very frightened that lucasfilm would object to it mm-hmm. and they'd come down on us and it was a weird thing because um every essay in the book with the exception of maybe two um i think tom carson's was negative arian burgers was middle and i think joe queenan's was a little harsh um but everything else was just sort of like we love this so much you know lydia millet who was not yet who was a novelist but not yet as as well known and well respected as she is today uh wrote this whole piece about her inner darth vader uh erica kraus about like martial arts and stuff i mean it was Mm -hmm. you know it was a very multifaceted thing but holt was really scared that lucasfilm would object so they really didn't publicize it all that aggressively and um Oh, yeah, and Kevin Smith is in the book with a very funny essay. So the book, uh, I still get publishers' um, statements. Um, and the book is still like $12,000 in the red. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it will, I mean, which will never. Sounds, right. Sounds very Hollywood math. It'll, there. it'll yeah. never be recouped because it's yeah. out of print and remaindered and da da da. Right, right, right. But. Um, it was fun to do. Um, I made an excellent friend in Tom Bissell and his colleague Webster Younce. Tom wrote this incredible essay in there about Boba Fett. Um, Todd Hansen of The Onion wrote this amazing thing about Jar Jar Binks. That was the other negative one, mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, well, it was very well respected. And you know, um, Cass Sunstein, the uh, legal scholar, did a book a couple of years ago 
about like why, how Star Wars imitates the world or whatever mm -hmm. it was. And I was rather gratified to see in that book, there are quite a few citations from the various essays in Galaxy Not So Far Away. So it, it was read by a bunch of the right people, I guess. But um, yeah, the money, uh, as, as that song by the Stranglers says, uh, the money's no good. So that did not bode well for my next book, either writing or editing or whatever, because the first thing people look at, you know, when you're under consideration by a publisher or an agent is your sales figures. Um, what happened with Anatomy of an Actor was I was approached by the Cahiers du Cinema fade on people. There was this strange deal where the magazine, the very well-respected magazine Cahiers du Cinema in France was entering into a publishing venture with Phaedon who made these coffee table books. So they wanted to make these coffee table books about movies that also had a Cahier approved um, perspective to them. I don't think there was any editorial oversight of my book from Cahier as such. And it was a kind of a prefab thing where it's the design is, everything is prefabricated. The design is mm -hmm. X and this is why, and the format is you look at a performer and you take 10 films of this performer that you think are representative of their work, and you do separate essays on each of these films. You do X number of sidebars. You do a intro and outro, and then there's a filmography, which is done in a very French way where you start uh, director, screenwriter, cinematographer, music, and then set decoration. <laughs> not, not production design. Not art director, yeah. set decoration. It always has to be set decoration. And then the cast. Very weird, very weird. We got into arguments. It's like, well, there's no credited set decorator. <laughs> this is the art director. Yeah. Yeah, but you have to say they're the set decorator, oh, whatever. <laughs> but I wasn't edited by anybody French. Uh, it was an English person. I got to see the French translation, which came out simultaneously with the book. It's very, I like it. It's very poetic. Mm -hmm. um, probably more poetic. So that was interesting too. And it was one of those things where um, the question was, well, are you going to interview Robert De Niro? And I said, no, I'm not going to interview Robert De Niro because the book is a, is a critical analysis. It's not getting into the mind of Robert De Niro as such. I did interview Edward Norton because I knew him and he had worked with De Niro on an unusual and interesting film that I thought was worth including as one of the main essays called Stone. And I like getting, you know, uh, his perspective. I don't, you know, and having interviewed Robert De Niro for the current book, Made Men, I am convinced that my decision not to interview him for Robert De Niro, Anatomy of an Actor, was the correct one. Mm -hmm. uh, and that book actually did okay. Um, I think they owe me money on <laughs> I got a royalty statement saying that I was owed some like $2,000 and I still yeah. haven't seen the $2,000 unless I blacked out and just spent it in some orgy of online shopping. Buying but, dog um, coin. You know, and I, I enjoyed writing the book, even though the initial, the advance money wasn't great. Um, and my editorial control was not 
I mean, I got to write the book I wanted to write, but well, can uh, I can I ask? Did you were you you were able to pick the movies yeah, or yeah, not? Yeah. Because I yeah, mean, I would like, assume that Stone is not one that a book publisher would be like. That's that's one, but it but it's one of the better essays. Or I, the, all the essays are very good, but it was one of the most interesting because it's not a movie that people think about when they're like Robert De Niro's great. Yeah, they let, they let me pick the movies, and quite frankly, you know, by that point in De Niro's career, what else am I going to pick? You mm-hmm. know, I have uh, Meet the Parents in there. I'm not going to do the sequels. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to do what Righteous Killer, whatever was going on at that time. So Stone right. seemed to me the best option because the score, which we talk about in the Stone chapter, because that's the chapter where that's the film where Edward and De Niro and Marlon Brando all met. Um, but I'm not going to do a full thing on the, on that. So. Mm-hmm. Stone seemed right, and uh, it was right. So there was no interference on that end. What, what what kept happening was, I talked about how the design was prefab, which mm-hmm. meant you had a very strict word count, but you also wanted to. They wanted the filmography to be as up to date as possible before they went to press, and this was happening at a period where De Niro had a film literally coming out every three weeks. So every three weeks during the preparation of the manuscript, I had to add another movie with um, director, screenwriter, producer, set decorator. (laughs) And that had to be added to the filmography. And for those would be like 14 to 20 lines of text. And for every film I added, I had to actually remove 14 to 20 lines of text from the body copy Mm. of the actual essays. And this went on for a period of almost a month where I had to add like maybe five films mm. and, you know, delete, you know, three, four hundred words. Wacky. So, you know, that's that's kind of what I mean by like lack of editorial yeah. control. But I was happy with the book. I think it holds up. Um, I think, uh, you know, I was able to intuit a lot about De Niro's way of working that um I, I did wish that I had the one thing that was kind of irksome to me about not having that huge amount of advance money was at the time I was not able to travel to Austin, Texas and look at De Niro's papers, mm-hmm. which I was able to do for um, Made Men. But once I did that for Made Men, I was gratified to a certain extent that what I had intuited about De Niro's method of working uh, turned out to be more or less true. And this was also something I got uh, through kind of, you know, uh, poaching some of the insights that Sean Levy had gleaned while writing his biography of De Niro. Sean's a pal. He had not published that biography yet, but he was uh, very generous in sharing insights uh, from his work in that area with me at the uh, at the time. So, um and then what, how did Made Men come along? Made Men was actually based on a proposal that I had written in 2014. In the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, I was working with one agent and we couldn't, you know, we couldn't get anything going. Um, then I switched agents because Joe Veltri, my current agent, was a friend. And he just said to me one evening, while we were having dinner, you're, I think you're a great writer. You should let me be your agent. I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, and we worked together and, you know, we couldn't get anything going for a long time. And, you know, 
if you're writing books nowadays, it's um, it can be kind of dispiriting because you, especially if you don't have this great already established uh, sales record, you're um, you do proposals. They're long. They're involved. You want to sample. They want a sample chapter, and you you get you do all sorts of research and you do it for no money. Yeah. And then you don't sell the book. Uh, and what happened, um, markets, you know, what becomes, what is marketable in books waxes and wanes. So we came up with, you know, I had, I had, I had worked with my prior agent on a Scarface making of, um, which we couldn't sell. Um, and that's probably for the best. And then um, with Joe, I worked on a Goodfellas proposal, and it was very well liked. People really enjoyed it. Um, this is after I had written a novel that got rejected, but a very enthusiastic rejection. Not like <laughs> enthusiastic rejection, but as in, this is great. We can't touch this. It's too provocative. Uh, so that was, I don't know if you'd call that encouraging or what. <laughs> But it was interesting. It was interesting to be rejected with such, you know, extravagant praise and, you know, blurbs from people like Owen King and Chris Sorrentino and Tom Bissell, da-da-da-da-da. Um, but um, we came up with this proposal for a Goodfellas book in 2014, and people liked it. But at the time, there was a book, another making of book out. I won't say what it was because I don't want to besmirch it because it's a good book. But it had really laid an egg, mm -hmm. and it had kind of soured uh, the waters for any other film making mm -hmm. of books at that particular point in time. The author went on to write a biography that has done exceptionally well and, and deservedly so. Um, but the the making of book from that year was not uh, it was just not viable. So that was that. But in 2016, 2018, Joe had been working with some editors who were doing some film books at different houses. And he said, you know, now might be the time to spruce up the, um, the Goodfellas proposal, which I did. And that's when it sold to Hanover Square Press um, in March of 2019, which was a mm. little bit of a quandary for me. We'd been talking to another publisher in late 2018, and it seemed like it was going to happen. And Scorsese's office had said they would cooperate with me, which was great. I talk about this in the actual book. And mm -hmm. um, then that deal didn't happen. Um, and I put a hex on the guy. No. Um, <laughs> and that was fine. But then we thought, well, we've done all this. We've come this far. We're working with this one guy. He can't see it. He can't see the book, but maybe another editor would. And that editor was Peter Joseph at Hanover Square Press. And then we got all the papers finalized. You know, uh, we got the deal in the end of March. So, and then they wanted the book a year from then, March 2019. I made the agreement and they wanted the manuscript by March 2020. So it wasn't, mm -hmm. wasn't as long as I wanted. And it wasn't as long as I have on, the next book I'm doing now for them. 
on a, on a different film, which I mm-hmm. can't reveal yet. But I was going to say, I was going. Can we break some news here? But no. No, nah, we. I got to wait until all the papers okay. are signed and stuff. Also, sure, sure. When you when you when you say these things too soon, it gets kind of like people get excited and then they just sort of forget about it. Right. The whole art or craft or guessing game of promoting books on in this in this era through social media. Um, you know, certain do's and don'ts that your publisher will tell you about. Some of them are valid, some of them are not. But, you know, uh, you want to, there are certain respects of holding your powder dry. But um, yeah. when the time is right, you you will be Excellent. among the first to know. <laughs> but, yeah, so this book came together in a year, and it was very, it was a more dramatic process than I had anticipated. And especially because, you know, having heard from, Martin Scorsese's office that they would be delighted to work with me on this. Um, I then spent a year trying to get an interview with him while he was editing The Irishman, mm-hmm. um, which was, he always has a year built into his contracts for editing. Uh, and in this case, the editing process was even more intensive because the digital de-aging technology sure. they needed was also in play. So he was kind of locked up, and I did not get to interview him until six days prior to my actual manuscript deadline, mm-hmm. which is exciting. That really, yeah. really gave the whole thing a suspense-tinged <laughs> um, ending. And there were other tales too, which I can tell if you want to ask sure, about them. Please, um, you know, I don't want to like underscore things that are missing from the book. But obviously one of them is I didn't get to talk to Ray Liotta, mm-hmm. which was frustrating for me. And it was very weird. Um, you know, I had cordial, you know, back and forth with his publicist. He was coming to New York to the New York Film Festival to do um, publicity for Marriage Story. Mm-hmm. Maybe I could talk to him then. He was in and out. He wasn't doing it. And then the publicist stopped responding to my emails. And I talked to my agent about it. He says, well, he's represented by our agency. We'll get him. Mm -hmm. So my agent talked to Ray Liotta's agent. They come back with, uh, now's not a good time. Mm. Then my wife works with a filmmaker, and Liotta was going to be in one of this filmmaker's films. And I thought, I can't go there. Um, <laughs> I mean, I kind of, I can, but I can't. Like, maybe if I go visit her on location, I'll just be sure. around. Sure. Only, this is March of 2019, 2020, there's no location. Yep. They did end up doing the film in September, and there was location, but there's no guests at location. So the point became completely mooted. Yeah. But, um, you know, I'm hoping someday he sees the book and says, uh, hey, and then says, you know, I'll talk to you for the paperback. It's not sure, sure. doesn't seem likely, though. Well, uh, do, did you get a sense he just didn't want to talk about the movie or doesn't? I didn't, didn't want get a, I didn't get a sense. Or I didn't just, get a sense of okay. anything. Yeah. You know, I, you know, and when he was doing this movie that my wife was working on. Um, I guess the overall impression, great actor, really prepared. Um, 
intense person and all about the work and then go home. So not a mm. lot of socializing, not a lot of anything. It's it's an interesting book because it's not just it's not just filled with interviews with folks who were in the movie, and folks who made the movie, and folks who were around for the pre production of the movie. Uh, it's also I, I really I, I like how it is structured. It's it's you've got this enormous 163 page chapter in the middle of the book that's basically a shot for shot breakdown, which you don't see a lot of in in books of this sort. I mean I I, I appreciate it as a critic, um, but I was wondering if the publisher had any kind of wariness about that, if they were, if they were like, well, does, are you sure we want to want to do it like this or? Yeah. I didn't have a problem. My publisher, one of the great things about working with Hanover square press in particular, working with its editor in chief, Peter Joseph, who have come to, who, who, who I've become friends with is they, um, they let me do the book I wanted to do. And, you know, I hewed relatively closely to what I had in the proposal. But as time went on, I realized that um, the structure of the book was going to be dictated by what I could do in terms of interviews and what interviews I did get or didn't get. And while I was waiting for a lot of these interviews to come through, like waiting for Scorsese, uh, waiting for Thelma Schoonmacher, who ultimately didn't come through, although I spoke to her mm-hmm. uh, in uh, in August of 2019. Um, I realized that there were certain things that I would just have to do if I was going to deliver the book on time. So uh, the structure of having that chapter of a kind of scene-by-scene breakdown was born out of necessity, I think, uh, just mm-hmm. so I could have something to write while I wasn't, you know, talking to people. Um, and people's responses to that, frankly, have been different. Some people like yourself like it. Most people, I think, like it. But you'll see if you look at the Amazon reviews of the book from people who bought it, that there's some people saying like, this chapter is nonsense. I don't need a breakdown of the movie. I already know what happens in the movie. Mm-hmm. Now, the chapter is not just what happens in the movie. It's what happens in the movie and how they got to where they got. Every every scene description has a quote from an actor or a technician who talks about how they did what they did and why they did what they did. So it's not, in in my defense, strictly a just then this happens sort of thing. But if you if people start that and they feel like that's what it's going to be, then they'll they'll get irritated by it. But I wasn't told not to do it. And honestly, I you know, the whole move the whole book starts with my first, the first time I meet Scorsese as a journalist or as a person ever, which is in 1989, and um, you know. As I'm going to his office to talk to him about working about an essay that I'm writing, having him write for a magazine I worked for mm-hmm. at the time, and he's editing Goodfellas. Generally, I don't like such a um, pronounced first-person approach. I mean, I used to when I was a younger writer. I used to think first-person was everything. Uh, I don't anymore. So, but in this case, I thought it worked out okay because it wasn't like when I first saw Goodfellas, I was ooh, ooh, ooh. Um, <laughs> but it was, you know, because I mean, who cares when you first saw Goodfellas? Yeah. But the fact that I, as a journalist, was meeting Scorsese for the first time in a context where he was editing this film that I'm now writing about because I think the point was more of a portrait of him 
in his uh, situation at the time than a than a portrait of me. You know, I wasn't yeah. really talking about there. I was a single man in Manhattan. You know, it's just sort of like here's here's where I I was here. He was here. This is what he was like. And that kind of made the fact that I didn't interview Martin Scorsese until the very end of the process of writing the book suggested a structural um, a structure where these could be brackets for the book. And so the book starts off journalist and Martin Scorsese in Martin Scorsese's office. Book ends journalist and Martin Scorsese in Martin Scorsese's office. And it's the same journalist. Mm -hmm. And it's 30 years later for both of them. And again, I don't go into too much detail of my life situation uh, throughout the book, but it seemed like, well, here's an interesting way to bracket it, you know, then and now. And it's yeah. and that worked out. And then making the scene by scene breakdown of the picture, the centerpiece, that's also, I think, structurally pleasing to my to my eye, at least. Well, I mean, it's and it's not just a breakdown. It's not just a description of what happens in the movie. I mean, you're using the language of criticism to explain why things work, why certain uh, uh, you know camera techniques or whatever are are effective in in getting across the point. Uh, that Scorsese is trying to make in each of these shots, yeah, which I think is useful for for the the average reader who doesn't often get that sort of thing. Yeah, but I think I, it can I'll be. To... It can be for sure. It's funny. My editor Peter Joseph actually sent me this very this very morning. Sent me a a disgruntled email <laughs> from a reader. Uh, I won't say his name, but I have his email address right here, and it's a token of my emotional maturity that I, I will not write back to him directly. <laughs> but he maybe expects a, a response. Um, it says, it's a letter to Peter Joseph. It says, hi, could you possibly forward this to Glenn Kenny? Thanks. And then it reads, hi, Glenn. After a long wait for the library book to become available, I finally picked up my copy of Made Men and eagerly started it. Obviously, you are a talented writer, and the book started very well. Unfortunately, I had to give up reading in Chapter 4 when you started in with the woke nonsense. What a mistake. Mm. You ruined what should have been an awesome read. Nobody wants to read that crap. What the hell were you thinking? I'm only thankful that I didn't waste a cent on the book. Maybe your publisher forced it on you? That that question has two question marks after it. And then he says, who knows? I just know that a great opportunity for an interesting book was botched. And then his name. I don't know if I should bother at all to write back to this guy. But if I did, I think I would say, yes, my publisher forced it on me. <laughs> but I'm actually trying to figure out what he means with the woke crap. And I'm looking and I'm looking. Does he have? Does he have any? He does uh, not. Quotes? No, no. There's no, no quotes. Example, just the woke just crap. Just the woke crap. And I guess so. The chapter starts on page sixty-seven, and on page seventy-nine, hmm, here's what I write: In Goodfellas, the main characters spout off all kinds of bigoted language against blacks, homosexuals, women, and so on. Italian Americans may have, in the early part of the twentieth century, seen themselves as up one or two mere rungs above blacks on the social hierarchy ladder, never considering, of course, that blacks had been literal slaves. For many individuals, that provided a pretext for kicking or punching down as hard as they were able. 
if not institutionally, then personally. So maybe that's woke crap. The I woke crap. I don't know. Uh, the fact that I would not actually spell out the racial epithet that the truck driver says after he makes the false claim that his truck was stolen, I don't know. But I don't think. I don't think it would do me much good to ask. I uh, I would not recommend emailing him back. That's uh, never never a good choice. I, I it's funny I, on the, on two pages after that on page eighty one, uh, there was there was a there's a line I I underlined here that you that uh, that you had written it. Here's the here's the quote. What's quote problematic about? Uh, I'm sorry. What's quote end quote problematic with Scorsese's portrayals? One supposes is that there's never a character who comes along and gives anyone a talking to about how racism is bad. And it's it's interesting, you know, as somebody who kind of lives on film Twitter, for better or worse. Oh, uh, yeah, wa- boy! Watching, watching these arguments happen over and over again about, you know, uh, does Scorsese endorse these people? Does, you know, why why is he glorifying Yes, the yeah. awful criminals and Wall Street hucksters and and all that sort of thing. And 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 this email, you know, is the exact opposite of that. I feel like I feel like everybody is just reading what they want into whatever they are reading as opposed to what the artist is trying to say. Yeah, there's a lot of intellectual opportunism in these kind of discussions. And um yeah, I mean, it's not even it's not even worth talking about this whole insistence especially because cuz Scorsese is a white male. Um, I think that feeds into it, and but this insistence that uh, representation equals a form of endorsement, and there are psychologists, and not not film critics, but there are psychologists who will say, yeah, actually, in a sense, it does, because people who are doing things in depictions are acting out things that people think are cool to do, and this has gone on forever because you know since the beginning of gangster movies does this endorse violent behavior and you know to be to be honest you know in 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 the book i i i I talk about the critic esther zuckerman who um am i allowed to say sir what's our you can say anything language is as no issue in the in, in i talk about film scorsese made subsequently in his career and i talk about their controversies. And I talk about um, when The Wolf of Wall Street came out, the critic Esther Zuckerman wrote a a review of it that said that, you know, The Wolf of Wall Street is a douchebag's handbook. Um, And at the time, I I was rather dismissive of her, possibly unfairly. And I still disagree with some of her points, as as I say in the book. However... You know, and I, I recently collaborated with Nick Pinkerton, uh, a fellow critic, on a commentary for an upcoming uh, 4K version of Wolf of Wall Street that will be put out at some point by Arrow Films. But, um, you know, we were doing the commentary right after there was that TikTok and there was this 12-year-old girl on TikTok asking all of her uh, rich some of them rich, some of them not, most of them white, uh, not all of them white, but asking all her, you know, clean cut bougie buddies uh, what their favorite film was. And they're all kind of like very good looking, very arrogant. You know, you can just sort of your skin crawls knowing that if you were their high school peer, 
they would be torturing you. Um, and they all go like, Wolf of Wall Street, you know, like, as it, you know. And, you know, it's like they, you know, they're young, they have short attention spans, they may be passed out during the last half hour of the film where he goes to jail. Um, but, you know, there are people who will take things the wrong way. Um, John David Hinckley and Taxi Driver. I mean, so, uh, but by the same token to make this kind of generalized proscriptive or prescriptive way of looking at them is not helpful to criticism or, mm -hmm. or art. And I don't think it's ultimately all that helpful to sociology. You know, Jim Jay Hoberman, the critic, interviewed Scorsese, and it was around the time of the um, of the Hinckley business, John David Hinckley business, and you know he found, you know, it's a hard thing to ask an artist. It's a hard question for an artist to answer, and Hoberman found Scorsese's answer slightly glib. He said, "Well, you know, you can't just go see uh, Taxi Driver. You have to see His Girl Friday too." <laughs> But with mentally ill people, this right. is what nobody talks about, is that is mental illness, which John Day Hinckley definitely have. Um, with mentally ill people, His Girl Friday is not going to have, it's not going to hook, the, you know, someone who had the kind of mental illness that Hinckley had was, was looking for something, you know, was trying right. to attach himself to an ideal that he could live or die for. His Girl Friday doesn't offer that. Travis Bickle's Quest does offer that. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, but this is a whole area of psychology and sociology that I don't think either of us are necessarily <laughs> qualified or inclined to discuss too deeply. But, I mean, the level that it's discussed on film Twitter is certainly incredibly superficial, declamatory, and... Um, sort of look at me I, i'm i'm good i'm good because i recognize that this is bad yeah fooey yeah fooey i say uh yeah no i mean it's uh, not worth as you say not worth getting into you know one, one of the things i really like to talk about on the show is the business uh of filmmaking and the business of hollywood mm -hmm. and there's one of one of the one of the things that jumped out at me in your uh in your in your book was the the scene in which the Warner's COO, Terry Semel, Semel, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, um, freaks out because Joe Pesci's How Am I Funny scene is being shot in front of him. It's not, it's not in the script. They're, they're ad-libbing. They're, you know, they're going, they're going off book. Uh, and then, you know, he's just like, they're, they're burning up my money. They're just wasting cash. So we're, they don't get to go to Tampa now. And, and it, you write a little bit about how they work around that, how they, they have the Tampa Zoo brought to, to Brooklyn and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it, but one thing that is, that's always, that's very amusing about this is in, in the book Scorsese on Scorsese, he talks about how that scene in particular really played well with audiences that, you know, it was, it was the sort of thing that, um. Let's see. Uh, the, it was one of their favorite scenes, he says. We, so we kept adding we kept adding setups to let the whole scene play out. Um, uh, you know, how how is a filmmaker of Martin Scorsese's caliber supposed to uh, 
balance that sort of, you know, business hectoring with the the artistic side of things? And and how does that play out in this movie? I mean, you you see it you see it come up a couple times. I think it's hinted at certainly in in the way he speaks at the end of the book, where he talks about every single film he's ever made has been a living hell uh, for him to produce, and uh, he actually, you know, even though. United Artists Seven Arts went out of business after Raging Bull and didn't give a huge amount of support to Raging Bull and was skeptical of Raging Bull before producing it. He said that was the only movie after, um, you know, New York, New York, and, you know, after doing Taxi Driver, New York, New York, Last Waltz. And the only movie where I felt any kind of level of studio support on was Raging Bull. And I didn't get that again on a comparable level at the production level, he said, not, you know, the mm-hmm. distribution level. But he said, I didn't get that again on a comparable level until The Irishman. That's crazy, right, when you think about it. Yeah. But he'll sit there and I'll mention films and he'll literally put up his hands and go, oh, my God, another nightmare, Kundun. You know, you Kundun, Marty, I liked it. Oh, another nightmare. Yeah, that's his response. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's all, as he said, it's always a knockdown, dragout fight. Now understand that he also has and he'll admit to this if you push the point um which i didn't because i wanted to let him talk but ever he has this amazing support system that always goes to bat for him you know one reason he wanted erwin i mean there are several reasons he wanted erwin winkler on goodfellas and one of them was the fact that erwin winkler bought the property so he you know he was the producer by just that default but you know, he feels that a, someone like Erwin Winkler has his back. When he worked with Barbara Dafina, to whom he was married, then divorced, and then they continued working together as, as producer and director for several years after that. Um, and that might not have been the smartest thing to do for their interpersonal relations or for Barbara Dafina's career outside of working with Scorsese or whatever, but they chose to do that, and that's how it played out. And she did amazing work on things like Casino, saved money, gave him what he needed to do to work with. When she, when I talked to her about Terry Semmel, she just shrugged it off. She's like, yeah, he was an idiot. I didn't like the way he spoke to me. He was incredibly condescending. He was awful. And when he tried to punish us with this, you're not going to Tampa thing, it was no big deal. We didn't care. We knew what to do. We could get some signage, set it up in Brooklyn or Queens or wherever the zoo. There's still some. Mm-hmm. Where was that shot? You know, put in a couple of inserts of the lions. That's invented, by the way. That's the one of the few things that you know I can't find in the book at all. That they're talking about throwing mm-hmm. the, the the way it works out in 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 Wise Guy, and I think in and Henry Hill goes into detail in other books that he's attached himself to is that they just met the guy at the bar and kicked the shit out of him. Um, but the lions thing was something they invented and it's funny and it's, you know, but yeah, they, Barbara Dufina's like, yeah, who cares? You know, he's going to do, and she's, she's a, she's a, you know, a hard nosed person, hard nosed producer. And she knows that studio heads are apt to do that. And she's smart and she has the practical solution right there. So he does have people looking out for him to get him what he wants. The the whole point, you know, Autourism, whether or not the director is the ultimate arbiter of what the film is, is something that is very contentious. But 
when you have a director with a strong vision and who knows about filmmaking, you know, Scorsese is a, a guy who learned everything about filmmaking before, you know, uh, over a long period of time. He edited, he shot, he knows about cameras, he knows about cutting, he knows all that stuff from a tactile uh, from a tactile perspective. A lot of directors who come into filmmaking now don't know those things. They know writing, mm -hmm. and they're thrown into a directing position, and they just have everybody else sort of doing it. So when you have someone who knows this much about filmmaking, that will include, you know, people who do, they include Scorsese, they include Claire Denis, they include Catherine Bigelow, David Fincher, Steven Soderbergh, Steven Spielberg. These are people, directors, Spike Lee, who know mm -hmm. filmmaking inside out and can do any of the jobs of a film. So as directors, they're very strong. And as directors, they have a support system that is dedicated to supporting his vision. So there's collaboration, there's contributions from people, but they're all like, does Marty want this? This is what Marty wants. Mm -hmm. So that's their function and that's what they do. But that's not to say that, you know, it's all springing from his brain full blown. But that's the kind of support system he needs and has on every film that he has. And he, but getting that, getting the studio people to keep their noses out of it um, because they'll come in at points. He talks about the aviator, how everything goes great on the aviator. And then one day in post-production, they decide they're going to cut him off, not give him what he needs to get what he needs from DiCaprio. Mm -hmm. And he says, fine, I'll leave. You can put the film out as is um and i'll walk um and you know but you know it's not the film and leo knows it's not the film and the way they solve that is that dicaprio's people come in and make it happen for him they get that yeah. they get that time but there was it, it, but that sort of slight like even the proposition of doing that mm -hmm. It um, it's anathema to him. He it, he thinks it's vile. He does not forgive. Um, that was you know Harvey Weinstein's doing on ABA. Sure, and he does not like Harvey Weinstein. He didn't <laughs> like. He said at least on Gangs in New York, I knew what I was signing up for with him. But on Aviator, no, no, he had no business doing that. I mean, yeah. it's very. It's very Italian, instances, and that I cannot forgive, you know. Um, so, but it's always something, and it it he remembers, and it sticks with him. So, um, this is why he, you know, will say that he, you know, he sometimes works in Hollywood, but he's never been of Hollywood, because he's mm -hmm. never felt that kind of like, great job, slap on the back, you're our guy. It's always. It's always a conflict. It's always, I think his exact words were, it's always a knockdown, drag out fight. Always. Always. Yeah. Imagine yeah. living like that. <laughs> I, well, I mean, it's, it's a hard business. It's a, you know, enormously expensive. And, and people don't, we, know. we critics do not really understand it. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. Uh, I've worked, uh, I've acted in films by an Oscar winning director. And, you know, my wife works for a, a pretty prominent filmmaker. So I find out a lot of stuff that I'm not allowed to talk about. 
Um, but it's all, you know, everything that every critic ever says about ever making a movie is completely wrong. <laughs> everything, 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 yeah. everything. The, that, that whole thing that critics like to talk about the well, one for them and one for me approach to filmmaking, complete bullshit, complete bullshit. It's only one for me if you put your own money in it yeah. and you're not supposed to put your own money in it. There are times when people have put their own money in it and it's worked out. But those times are very, very, very infrequent. And even those aren't, I mean, it's it's just crazy. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a crazy business. And it's it's nerve-wracking. Yeah. I, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and his people. And, and you know, it, there's lots of people like to talk about how, you know, Scorsese has had his, his partnership with Robert De Niro and his partnership with Leonardo DiCaprio. I was wondering if you had any insight into, like, how how those were how those are the same and how they're different and how star power can can kind of aid or hinder uh the director and this sort of thing uh, you know maybe he, there's i know a lot of things on a hearsay basis um so i'll be cautious about doing that but um one thing and and again i talk about this in the book um barbara fina um has said you know well, the idea that De Niro and Scorsese like hang out all the time is ridiculous. Um, which is not to say they're not close. You can't have the kind of professional relationship that they have without having a close personal relationship. Um, but yeah, they're not like, Hey, you know, right. they dine, <laughs> they do. So they're, they're socialized, but it's not like, you know, it's not like a daily checking in thing. And to be, you know, what I discovered while working on main men is that, you know, a lot of the times the things that went into them working in this collaboration had to do with happenstance. Uh, now, obviously, Scorsese, uh, De Niro recognizes Scorsese's amazing talent, similarly with De Niro, but it's not as if they're always looking for things to do together, and that wasn't even the case early on. You know, uh, Mean Streets was their first collaboration, and it was a picture that De Niro thought he wanted the lead role of Charlie. He didn't get it. That went to Harvey Keitel, who was, you know, looking like he was going to be the Scorsese acting surrogate, given his work mm -hmm. on Who's That Knocking on My Door and then following with uh, uh, Mean Streets. But, you know, uh, De Niro saw the opportunity in the role of uh, Johnny Boy in Mean Streets, and he ran away with it. Um, every actor in the movie is superb, but he steals it, you know, because it was there for the stealing. So that made it, um, when time came to do Taxi Driver, De Niro was more bankable because of the, because of playing, uh, young Don Corleone in Godfather Part Two. Um, for a long time, Taxi Driver was going to be made with Jeff Bridges in the role of, um, in the role of, um, Travis Bickle, that would have been weird. Yeah. Scorsese's on board, you know, and then they think, well, why not bring De Niro in to do Travis? And that did well. It wasn't a huge hit, but it was a provocative film. It was a movie that everybody knew about and was talked about. Not in the same way. I mean, being an ancient person, um, I can say that in my recollection, the discussion of Taxi Driver um, you know, it was seen as a provocative film, but nowadays there's much more, oh my, you know, there's much more 
Jodie Foster fainting couch talk of Jodie Foster as a teenage prostitute than there was at the time. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's because in this case we are now in a more enlightened time, but that's neither here nor there. But it was a known film. So that gave them, you know, and New York, New York came about because Erwin Winkler wanted to make a musical. Um, and it had a totally different idea, but because of uh, the prominence of Taxi Driver, Scorsese came into his orbit, you know, talked about his love for Vincent Minnelli movies. And that, I think, I think New York, New York was kind of like the film in which De Niro and Scorsese were most in mesh with each other in terms of wanting to work together on this project because they both put a lot of their own uh, lives into it, facing the whole problem of their own relationship to masculinity, which was often, and their own feeling of how to be a creative person and still have normal human relationships and the conclusion of the movie is you can't. Um, That was a topic that was very, I think, personal personally resonant for them. So that I think was kind of the height of their personal affinity in terms of films. Mm -hmm. And that film did not do well. And that film failed and Scorsese felt he had failed as an artist. This drove him into more accelerated drug use, which he, which put him into a very bad health crisis. And it was during that health crisis, uh, the tail end of that health crisis, that De Niro, who had been looking at Raging Bull, came to him and said, we can do this. We can make this film. And it was De Niro's impetus that really made that happen. Scorsese was skeptical. He said, no, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with Hollywood. I'm done with this kind of filmmaking. But I'll make this film with you, he says. And then I'm going to move to Italy. <laughs> and then I'm going to make small personal films low-budget films about the lives of the saints. This was his idea at the time. Yeah. He made Raging Bull, and he didn't go to Italy and make small films about lives of the saints. Instead, he made King of Comedy, which you know was an incredible flop and put him in movie jail for about right. four years. And I remember going out to Austin. King of Comedy was another thing. that That was all De Niro's development. De Niro doesn't like to talk about stuff in the abstract and you don't know why he's attracted to things. But when he is attracted to things, he goes all in. And he spent many years working with Paul Zimmerman. I think uh, King of Comedy started out as a novel or a novella. And they went through several drafts of making it into a treatment and a script. And I saw one of the scripts at uh, in De Niro's papers at the University of, of Texas in Austin. And there's a note on one of the opening pages And it says in the script, Marty, hyphen, why does everything have to be crazy and violent? He didn't want to do this movie because why does everything have to be crazy and violent? But De Niro talked him into that. And that had very bad consequences for Scorsese and no consequences for De Niro. He actually Mm -hmm. walked away from that, did a little rejiggering and became a huge movie star. So when Goodfellas happened, that became a case of Scorsese needing to go to De Niro and ask, not quite a favor, but in essence, a favor. Mm-hmm. And that's how that worked out. 
You mentioned you mentioned a little earlier uh, not regretting not talking to Robert De Niro for for the the Fade On book. Um, uh, I, I'm just curious uh, why that is. I mean, I, I I I always have a hard time talking to actors whenever I have to interview them for for anything because it's I, it's it's such an interior job, and I, I I'm never entirely sure how to talk to them about it. But what what made it better for Made Men than it would have for uh, uh, anatomy of an actor. Well, I got to Nero on a day when he was kind of a tough interview. Not that he was unpleasant or not wanting to be helpful, but as he said, um, it's been 30 years since he did the movie. He doesn't remember things. He's not ailing. He doesn't have dementia or Alzheimer's, but he's just someone who doesn't have a great memory. This has been forever. Um, there's some footage on YouTube of a Don Rickles tribute that shows some outtakes from Casino, which is made, you know, when De Niro was still a relatively young man. And Rickles is giving him shit. He's saying, go go to your trailer, memorize your lines. You're, you're getting paid enough. You have to have these post-it notes on these bar stools. And, and, and come on, come on, do your job. But as Barbara Fina told me, she said, you know, De Niro's never memorized a script. He doesn't, he, he, it's, it doesn't work that way for him. And that's probably a reason why he's done in his uh, fame. Uh, he's done so little live theater. Um, and he doesn't think about his life or his work in the way that critics or journalists or historians do. He doesn't think, ah, Midnight Run. Goodfellas, landmark films in my career. He thinks about what his hair was like mm -hmm. and how he was, because as an actor, he works from the outside in. He's very meticulous about clothing and hairstyles and dress and jewelry. <clears throat> he wants real money when he's on the set gambling as Jimmy because he's, you know, uh, he wants the feel of real money. And he doesn't think about psychology. Again, this is in the book. And that's kind of like how his mind works outside of the job, too. It's just sort of like, well, where was I when this happened? And he won't talk about his psychological state or his personal life. He's a very private person, very close to the vest about a lot of stuff. He doesn't talk about his marriages or his children. But he also doesn't he doesn't think abstractly. It's not to say he's dumb. He's mm -hmm. certainly not dumb. He's one of the most intelligent people working in the film business, but he doesn't, he's not attracted to abstractions. So you can't talk to him as an actor would about, you know, the concepts involved in the process or things such as that. It's just sort of like, I was here, I was wearing this, I did that. And that's that. And I don't remember other stuff. <laughs> and that's fine. I said, I said to him, I said, you know, well, I'm going down to Austin to look at your papers. I hope I find something there. He says, yeah, you'll probably get something there. I'm like, yeah, I hope so. Cause this is not gone. <laughs> it's not that it didn't go well, but it's just sort of like, I ask him to reflect on certain moments and, you know, there's just no, not a lot of recollection. He's in the moment. He does the work. He lets it go. Mm. He's not a guy who said, hey, this funny thing happened on set. It's like I was on the set. Yeah. I did my job. 
you know, I did get him to talk a little bit about his attitude towards other actors on the set because this was, um, this interview was after Joker came out and there was some, uh, press reports about, uh, how he kind of didn't dress down Joaquin Phoenix, but just sort of wasn't particularly, um, indulgent of Phoenix's ways of working. And I talked about what Michael Imperioli told me about how it was such a thrill to meet De Niro on the set of Goodfellas, but he also knew enough about De Niro that he wasn't going to go up to say, you know, oh gosh, it's so great to meet you. I'm such an admirer <laughs> of you. That De Niro comes on the set to work and he he got there before anybody else and he's playing spider before they're, while they're setting up. He's sweeping the floor. De Niro's the first guy there. He gets in his chair at the, where it's marked and he sits down. And instead of saying, you know, oh, De Niro, um, he says, uh, what can I get you? And De Niro's actually taken aback by this because he's kind of used to people geeking out over him by now and he doesn't like it. But it takes him a minute to click and he gets it. He says, oh, yeah, give me a scotch and soda or a seven and seven. I brought that up to De Niro. He says, yeah. yeah. He says, yeah. This is what he says. He says, yeah, you're there to work. Um, you're not there to make friends. You're there to work. That's what he does. He goes on the set and he works. He's yeah. not, uh, you know, he's not a kidder. I mean, there was a time when they shot the, uh, when they shot the killing of Joey Gallo for the Irishman, uh, they shot that scene and, uh, that was shot on Scorsese's birthday. So afterwards him and Keitel and a few other people gave Marty a cake. And that's the extent of the, the onset hijinks of Robert yeah. De Niro. That's, birthday cake that's it that's the that's it uh uh all right we're, we're running a little long here uh so i want to wrap it up I, the question i always like to ask uh folks at the end of the show is what should i have asked what have i forgotten uh to ask what would you like people to know uh about the book or about goodfellas or whatever I, anything anything you want to talk you know about? you i like this has been a good interview because you've asked questions that i haven't been asked at least explicitly before which is cool uh you know um and I like the fact that you're already aware of the fact that book publishing is a business because people like will approach me and saying, well, how did you get the idea for this book? As if these things come out of this, you know, sheer inspiration, which I would love to be the case, but is never the case. Well, with fiction, it can be the case, but then you have the sheer inspiration and you write the fiction and then you try and sell it. And maybe that's a little bit, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but with a nonfiction book, you have to craft it to the, to, to what the market is interested in, what the market will bear, what have you. And that's a reality. And I'm glad that you just kind of kicked off with that reality. Um, I will say, I apologize for typos in the book, which exist and they'll are, being fixed for subsequent editions. I'm aware of them. Thank you. <laughs> I'm ashamed of them. It gives, I mean, I'm not even kidding. There are times when I have a deep shame and it was a period where I looked at the book and I could only see what was wrong with it. But because people like you have talked about how much they have enjoyed it, I consider that legitimate and I'm very flattered and honored uh, to be indulged this way. And uh, yeah, when I can talk about my next book, I will. And uh, hopefully with you.
Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, again, the name of the book is Made Men, a uh, story of good fellas. Go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your local bookseller if you live in a place that still has local booksellers uh, and pick it up. Uh, and I will be back next week with another, another episode of The uh, the Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. Thank you, Sonny. Thank you, Sonny.